and also the, today's uh, Sunday School classes on Providence. Um, if you turn in your uh, Psalter hymnals, we are looking at Lord's Day 10 of the Heidelberg Catechism together. Lord's Day 10 of the Heidelberg Catechism, and as is our custom, and I also think a wise practice, um, we're going to recite it together. I'm reminded of a, a joke I heard. I heard the joke from N.T. Wright. It's not a joke, it actually happened. I heard the story from N.T. Wright, but it wasn't him, it was another professor teaching at Union Theological Seminary in New York. And if you know anything about Union Theological Seminary, it's a very, very liberal school. And so one day at the beginning of one of the classes, I think it was New Testament, one of the students asked, do we need a Bible for this class? And the professor responded, you'll find that the Bible throws a great deal of light on the commentaries. Um, I, I want to say that since we're working through the Heidelberg Catechism, of course for the purpose of knowing God's word, uh, it is good for us before we comment on the Heidelberg Catechism uh, to read it together. Lord's Day number 10, we'll read it responsibly. Question number 27. What do you understand by the providence of God? Providence is the almighty and ever-present power of God by which God upholds as with his hand heaven and earth and all creatures and so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things, in fact, come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. Question 28. How does the knowledge of God's creation and providence help us? We can be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and for the future we can have good confidence in our faithful God and Father that no creature will separate us from his love. For all creatures are so completely in his hand that without his will they can neither move nor be moved. So this morning we're going to be uh, considering the personal and comforting truths regarding the biblical doctrine of providence. Um, you may have noticed how closely this portion of the Heidelberg Catechism uh, dovetails with this morning's sermon. Um, after all, my point this morning was is how you think about God as being your king and your father. And really, that's the core issue behind us understanding the biblical doctrine of providence. God is the king of all creation. He created everything. He governs everything according to the perfect counsel of his own will. He brings literally every detail in the universe to pass. Right? That doesn't mean that God is um, responsible for the evil that we do, but it means that God is always completely sovereign over every single molecule of the universe, and everything that happens in the universe, therefore, ultimately results in his glory and the good of his people. Um, this morning, um, we saw that what we think about the Lord determines how we pray. And in particular, we focused on the twin truths that we pray to our king and that we pray to our father who loves us as his children. This is really what the biblical doctrine of providence is all about as well. Because the Lord is King of kings and Lord of lords, he governs everything that will ever take place. Um, that's the doctrine of providence in the abstract. 
But when we talk about providence, we don't talk about it in the abstract. We talk about it from our standpoint of being God's children. Uh, and you can actually see that even in the word. Um, the word providence is intimately related to the word provision. They actually both come from the same Latin terms, providentio, or with ecclesiastical uh, pronunciation, provideo. Providence, provide, provision. They come from the same place. And the reason is, is because you are God's child as he works all things together. He's actually doing it in a way that provides for your needs. God does, gives you everything that you need in order to glorify him, in order to enjoy him forever. That's why this uh, doctrine of providence isn't just an abstract thing to think about. It's actually good news for us. Uh, we see the first aspect, that is the sovereignty aspect of this, in question number 27. The catechism answers, what do you understand by the providence of God? And it answers, providence is the almighty and ever-present power of God, by which God upholds as with his hand heaven and earth and all creatures, and so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things, in fact, come to us, not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. Um, I've often wondered if, you know, you actually think, actually, I think you ought to try to avoid thinking about it, but if you actually think that everything in the universe happens by chance, right, it's just random, there's no creator, it's just molecules in motion and so on, how hard that must make your life. Right? You know, when bad things happen to you, there actually could be ultimately bad things. There, there's no purpose behind it. If you suffer in this life, you can't go, well, you know, that's for a good end. It's just bad. It's part of the chance universe, and eventually I'll return to the dust and I'll be meaningless. In fact, I'm meaningless right now. But thankfully, that's not the truth. God, your creator, who loves you with an everlasting love in Jesus Christ, is governing everything that happens. That means your suffering has meaning, not just for you. It has meaning for the universe. It has meaning to God. God cares about it. And he is using it for his good purposes. As I say, the uh, word for providence is closely related to the word for provision. Uh, and I'd like to look at two passages this morning. Uh, they're classic passages from the Old Testament, so I'm sure you've heard this before if you've thought about the doctrine of providence. But I think they'll be really quite helpful to us. Uh, let me just pause and, and, and mention one thing in advance about this whole idea of seeing in advance, right? pro videos to see in advance, or in God's case, to see to it in advance. How can anyone do that? How can someone see into the future and accurately tell us what's going to happen? I think there's actually three ways. One is there are certain ways that God has created the world so that if you know certain things about science, um, ask Sergei about this, uh, with weather that to a certain degree, for short periods of time, you can predict the weather in the future. Not perfectly. Sometimes the weather reports are wrong, but the technology is getting better and better, and increasingly we can have a pretty good idea what the weather is going to be like in the next couple of days in most parts of the world. That, that's one way of seeing the future. But of course it's limited both to very short term periods of time, and it's also limited to those things that we can measure like this. 
Another way that people could see the future is God could give them a vision. We think about the prophets in the Old Testament. God reveals the future to them. They have no control over the future. They're just human beings like you, right? Dust. But they can have an accurate understanding of what's going to happen because God tells them. That is not the way that God sees the future. God is not a really good guesser about what's going to take place tomorrow. The reason why God can see the future perfectly is he actually brings the future to pass. Right? So in providence, God, God may tell you through his word things that are going to happen, some that we don't have dates for, but they're absolutely certain, like the second coming of Christ. Christ is going to come again. You can know that absolutely, completely, go to bed tonight, go, I don't just know that 88%. It's not a likely forecast. It's a done deal. Christ will come again for his people. But God knows everything perfectly because he's governing it. He doesn't know it as someone who's predicting the event. He knows it as someone who's bringing it to pass with absolute sovereignty. So I want to give you two passages from the Old Testament. The first is from Genesis 22. Um, Genesis 22, I want to invite you to turn there with me. We're going to look at about 14 verses here. Not in detail, but uh, really how it terminates on verse 14. This is a very, very famous portion of God's word. We have our Jewish friends call it the Aqaba. Um, Famous in Jewish circles and rightly famous in ours as well. So it begins in verse 1 with us being told that after these things, God tested Abraham. I want to remind you that Abraham did not know he was being tested. When God called him here, Abraham does not know the end of the story yet. Although I think we can see that he reasons himself to something like the end of the story. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here, I, he, here am I. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took it in his hand, the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father... And he said, here am I, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there, and laid the wood in order, and bound Isaac his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand, and he took the knife to slaughter his son. 
But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here am I. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, The Lord Will Provide. As it is said to this day, On the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Well, it's not surprising. That's a famous passage. I mean, it's a gripping story. Uh, any of you who are parents, you can't imagine what it would be like. I mean, it's just terrifying to think God calling to you, the God who has promised you life, who called you and sent you to this new land of Canaan and said, I'm going to make your seed great and they'll multiply in the face of the earth. And all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed through your seed. And then the promised child comes and God says, go offer your son up as a sacrifice. Of course, why it's so important for us to get is Isaac doesn't die. There's a substitute provided in Isaac's place, but it pictures pointing forward to God the Father sending his own son into the world. And there's no substitute for Jesus. Jesus comes as a substitute who will die in the place of all his people. Right? Who are those people? Father Abraham had many sons. I am one of them. Okay? There was a substitute provided for Isaac, Abraham's son. There's a substitute provided for you, who are all Abraham's sons and daughters in Jesus Christ. But I want to draw your attention to the last verse, verse 14. Abraham does not call this place the place where the Lord provided. He calls it the place where the Lord will provide. As it is said this day, right, it's down in Moses' day, the people of Israel are still talking about this. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. So I ask you, how is that fulfilled? And there's two correct answers. How is it fulfilled that on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided? Oh, you got quiet all of a sudden. This is a bold group, a biblically literate group. You all know the answer to this. Mount Moriah. You all know where Mount Moriah is, don't you? Mountain range. It's actually a mountain range, not just an individual peak. Where's Mount Moriah? More in Israel. It is in Israel. That is correct. It's in Jerusalem. That is also correct. So how is this prophecy fulfilled? Prophecy. Jesus is crucified there. That is the most important answer. What's the second answer that your Jewish friends should know? It'll help you to remember it's a mountain range and not just an individual peak. Is it Jordanian mountains? What? Jordanian mountains? No, no, it's, this is in Jerusalem. Yeah. No, no, it's, it's actually where the temple gets built. Yeah. Is that where uh, uh, David... The exactly. And that they bought the crushing for 
Yeah, so Allison's pointing to the fact that in the days of David, a great plague was going through the land because of David's sin. It was actually David's fault. He numbered the people. That is, he put confidence in the number of the people. It wasn't the mere counting was the problem. He put confidence in the numbering of the people, and God sent a plague. It was wiping out the nation. David saw, we don't know how that happens, but he saw the angel of the Lord coming, there was this destroying angel coming, and he bought the threshing floor, and he offered up a sacrifice, and that's where the sacrifice, that's where the, plague stopped, but it's also where they built the temple so they could offer sacrifices for a thousand years in the future, right? So that's how God was making provision there, through those sacrifices. Now, if you only think it's that exact spot, it'll get confusing, but if you remember that Mount Moriah, or you have someone like me to tell you, Mount Moriah is not just that spot, it's that whole range of mountains, you'll realize that when Jesus gets crucified outside of Jerusalem at Calvary, Calvary is part of Mount Moriah. It is precisely in this place where the Lord will, we can look back and say, the Lord has provided. That's provision. That's providence. Right? Those, things, those things go together. Um, questions on that passage, actually, or anything about seeing that in the life of Abraham, 1,800 years before Christ comes, God was promising a very specific fulfillment and where it would take place. On the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. Anyone at all? Nathan's going to stump me here in a minute because he's been thinking of hard questions to ask. Yeah, John. The, just a, so you're not saying there's any generality to it? So they didn't believe that God was practically providing for them day in and day out for their needs, like their regular sacrifices? Oh! Very specifically in these future-looking I'm saying it's both, but keep in mind in Abraham's day, there is no temple in Jerusalem that doesn't get built for another 800 years. So in saying that on the mount of the Lord it will be provided does not mean that Abraham was not already offering up sacrifices. Although the sacrificial system as it points forward to Christ um, really does not get developed until the Mosaic law. So it seems that Abraham offered up sacrifices to honor the Lord. Obviously they understood the substitutionary nature of it. But it really doesn't get going to the Mosaic Covenant. And initially, when the people come into the Promised Land, they don't start at Jerusalem. Remember, David takes Jerusalem. So there's a long period of time before it gets there. But if you think about Israel's history, this is the place, and it's actually talked about um, in the Pentateuch with Moses, uh, before they go to the Promised Land, the Lord is going to put his name in a particular place. That's where you need to bring these sorts of sacrifices. You can do fellowship offerings elsewhere. So I'm saying that this, this fulfillment of Genesis 22 is specifically where the temple gets built, and that's where they're offering sacrifices, and it's not being fulfilled in the general offering of sacrifices elsewhere. It's identifying it with a particular piece of land. And then, of course, that points forward to Christ dying at Calvary. Yes. I was going to ask the, the footnote where it says, um, on the Mount of the Lord it shall be provided, it says, or he will be seen. Is that then tied in with the temple ideas, the keeping seen versus the it shall be provided? Uh, I don't like the footnote, um, so I'm, I'm going to stick with provided. I think that's actually a better handling of the text. There's always. I'm trying to understand what the footnote's related to or what it's trying to understand. I, I don't, I'd have to look into it. I've seen that before and I don't remember. But, I mean, it could be a lot of things. There could be variance in terms of textual uh, history. But it could also be that people are trying to avoid um, 
It's kind of weird. This can get carried over into evangelical and conservative circles. What happens is, is people are doing scholarship, and it turns out that, let's say, Jewish people dislike the fact that Christians are saying this points forward to Jesus, and then it kind of influences the way people talk. Um, it could be a lot of different things. If you remind me, I'll, I'll take a look at it. Yeah, but I, Bob. So it's verse 14 says, uh, as it is said this day, is there a contemporary reference there? Yeah, it's taken, it's taken down to the time of Moses. So, so think about Abraham. When Abraham actually offers his son up, that's 400 plus years earlier, more than 400 years earlier. And, and what Moses is saying, as God is inspiring Moses to write this, I'm going to say Moses is writing this, he's saying that wasn't just something that happened to be said there. This has been something we all know as the people of God. We've been talking about this, that on the Mount of the Lord it will be provided. That's not a new idea. It's a continuation of it. Oh, sorry, it's not, it doesn't have reference to anything during the period of the instance. It has focus on reference to what happened in the past of Abraham. Yeah. Yeah, but, it, but the, the connection is that what happened to Abraham matters to them because they are children of Abraham. They, when God sends Moses down into Egypt to deliver his people, and Moses says, well, they're going to ask me what your name is. What do I tell them? What's the answer? I am that I am. That comes after, after it. What comes first? That's a good answer. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. This is my name forever. See, God is saying, I've identified with a people. And when I bring you out of Egypt, it's not just about you. I'm fulfilling the promises I made to your forefathers 400 years earlier. So there, there's this living relationship of the people of God with the patriarchs. We're connected to them. And, and so the promise that God makes to Abraham matters to the people who were in Egypt. It matters to them in the Exodus. They, they don't say, this is a promise God, this is something God did with that other guy out there. They're saying, this is what God did with our father, and therefore with us. Right? We're in covenant here. No, it's not reference to Sinai. Okay. No, no, it's, it's not a reference. So the, the, the question, of course, could be is sometimes Sinai is also referred to as the mountain of the Lord. But that's not what's going on here. This is referring to where the temple gets built. It becomes explicit when you look at um, the building of the temple later on. And, of course, as uh, Allison pointed out, with the threshing floor of David and so on, you can trace, trace those connections. Let me move on to a, a second passage here. And my wordiness, we're already running out of time. Um, let me shorten this up a bit. You're all familiar with the story of Joseph being um, sold into slavery by his brothers. They sold him into slavery because they were jealous of him. Sold him into slavery out of spite. It's all bad, bad motives, bad family. If you, th you think those were the good old days, um, they were not so good. Um, but Joseph gets sent as a slave down into Egypt. But you know, a funny thing happens. God raises him up. That's providence. God's working through all these circumstances. Um, you know, all, the, all these people down in Egypt weren't going, hey, you know what, we're doing God's will. The slave traders, the Midianites, were not saying, oh, we're carrying out God's will by bringing Joseph down into Egypt. Right? But God was orchestrating everything. But then, you know, one day, um, Joseph is raised up to be the prime minister of the land. He has absolute authority. He can do anything he wants, pretty much, uh, at least for a period of time. Uh, he, he bears the king's own authority. And the brothers come down, and they're going, well, you know, we got dad with us. We're okay. But when the father dies, 
All the brothers think exactly what you would have thought if you had done to Joseph what they had done to Joseph. Retribution is going to come. So they go and plead with Joseph. They actually make something up, or at least it seems like they made it up. Who knows, their father may have actually said this, but he says, look, you know, our father said, please be gentle with us and all that. You know, we know that, we know that we're guilty. Treat us like your slaves, but, you know, don't do things that are worse to us. Do you remember what Joseph said to them? Joseph said, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. See, there's a great deal of comfort in knowing that God is completely in charge. And Joseph was not saying what you did was no big deal. Or by the way, you know, I was pretty clever. It turned out for good. No, you meant it for evil. But God was at work in the very same circumstances intending it for good. I like this passage. We talk about providence because it introduces the doctrine of concurrence. Concurrence is a very helpful concept for you as you think about history. You can think of two rivers rushing together and making a new river, right? Concurrence. What we mean by concurrence is, is God is at work and people are at work in the very same circumstances. See, God's exhaustive sovereignty of the universe does not keep you from making choices. It does not keep your choices from being consequential. They, they matter. The, the decisions his brothers made actually did lead to him getting sold into slavery and having really a pretty difficult life for decades. But God was working at the same time. And they were doing it for different purposes. That is why when you see sin and problems in the world, you can't look at it and go, well, if God's in charge of everything, well, that must mean God's the author of evil. No. Human beings are intending evil, and God's using exactly the same events, same choices, for his perfectly good and holy purposes. Most importantly, the cross. The cross is the most evil, wicked thing in all of history. When God himself came into this world, took to himself a true human nature and walked among us, we nailed him to a cross and put him to death in a brutal way. Right? Horrendously wicked. It's also the greatest thing that's ever happened. See, human beings intended it for evil. God intended it for the salvation of the world. So that's, that's a very important truth. Um, questions about that? I do want to move on to the second question briefly at least. Concurrence is an important thing to keep in mind. It will really help you from getting tangled up as you think about election and God's exhaustive sovereignty and the fact that he foreordains everything that comes to pass. That does not turn us into uh, mere machines, although the machines are getting smarter. Uh, it doesn't turn us into robots, as it were, who, who simply are being programmed. We have choices, but God is working out his perfect will through them. The Catechism goes on to give us several of the benefits that flow to us from this wonderful doctrine of God's providence. And it does so under three main headings. First, we can be patient in adversity. After all, God's governing everything. Right? If, if adversity is random, I'm going to be exhausted by it. But I, I can go home at night and go, I don't know why God's doing this. Because you know, God does not whisper into my ear and say, this is why these bad things came into your life or your friends' lives or why someone in the church is horribly sick or their mother died or whatever it happens to be. He doesn't do that. 
I don't know those things, but I know God. He's the God who loves me so much, he sent his son to die for me. And you know the exact same thing. And therefore, you can know that the events that you're going through right now are in his hands. And he is working them for good purposes. And that leads to patience. Second, we can and we should be thankful in prosperity. You know, if you forget that God's in charge of everything, um, you work hard, you should. You really should work hard at things. You should try to be good at your job. If you're a student, you should try to be a good student. I mean, don't stress yourself out. You do not have to have, like, straight A's all the time. I know some neurotic people like that, or at least my wife does. Um, uh, we used to joke that, you know, if I had, like, a 98.3 or 99.1 fever, I'd be trying to figure out how i get the last .9 there and get it up to 100. Um, don't be like your pastor in this. Um, although, in fairness to me, when I, I took a, a Hebrew class down at Harvard, I don't know, four or five years ago, it was kind of for PhD students and stuff, and uh, at the end of the class, I think I had like a 99.6 grade point, you know, average in the class. Like, she asked me, what was your grade? And she goes, really? I thought you would have done better than that. <laughs> so <laughs> it's, a, it's a tough household. Um, anyway, sorry, didn't mean, didn't mean to have that distracting point there. Um, we should be thankful in prosperity. Because when good things happen to you, even though you're applying yourself, and you should, and you're working at it, and you should, and you're trying to build your business, and it's becoming successful, that's all great. But God is the one that's giving you the fruit and the rewards, right? Just, just like when we, we speak of the gospel, right? Paul talks about, I planted Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. And so as we remember that God is sovereignly orchestrating everything that takes place, every time you enjoy something good in your life, that's a cause for you to give thanks to God. The sun comes up, it's beautiful, right? One of your children says something nice to you, just encouraging. Well, you thank your children. You thank your Father in heaven, too. They're all a gift from his hand. And third, we can have good confidence in our faithful God and Father that no creature will separate us from his love. For all creatures are so completely in his hand that without his will, they can neither move nor be moved. Beloved, that's an encouragement to you that comes to you from understanding God's providence. As we often say, or at least your pastor often says, going to Romans chapter 8, he who spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also, with him, freely give us all things? And see, that brings those two truths together we talked about in the morning sermon. God is in charge of everything. He's the absolute king, but he's also your father. Therefore, he's able to do everything you need, and he's desirous to do that which is for your good. Any questions before we close? John. There's just a little bit more emphasis on a different aspect of it, too, when I was a kid. And maybe it's more like a continental reform perspective, because there is kind of a, a Dutchy way of thinking about politics, too. But it's um, in that the gifts that you have, and, and even our um, profession of sin today, is that the gifts that you have are from God. So you, you don't have. And any potential that God will not give you. So if you're yeah. in sports or math or English or Greek or something like that, that that, that gift is from God. And yeah. you don't necessarily know your gifts and God might strengthen you in different ways than others, but you don't it's a but it drives humility and it also drives your ability to give the glory to God in all things. Yeah. 
Let me, let me encourage all of you to think about that. I, I, he says it's Dutchy, but it's actually also the Apostle Paul and Jesus, so it's really important. All the gifts, yeah, all the gifts that you have come from God, and actually one of the problems we have is we can, we can start with myself as a given. Right? I am this way. I have a certain height, IQ, lack of ability to play basketball, whatever it happens to be, right? I, I just am this way. And I will tell you that when I was a young Marine Corps officer, if, you, if you're not aware of this, but when guys come like out of the Naval Academy and they're like 22, 23, we're all really super hard charging. We're out there taking on the world. And God stuck a verse in my head, and it was there for three years, and it came over and over and over again from Paul's letter to the Corinthians. What do you have that you didn't first receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as though you didn't? That's a very good truth, a very good scripture that goes together with what John is saying here. Everything that you are and everything that you receive in this world that is good for you comes as a gift from your Father in heaven. So let us give thanks with grateful hearts.